So I ended up going to a career advisor and recruiter and they said the exact same thing to me. They said, you are not a typical accounting and finance person. Um, you're a people person who just likes numbers. <laughs> so they actually geared me towards um, the hospitality side and small business. Um, they saw that I had a lot of passion towards operations and understanding of it. So they wanted me to be in a business where I could be a part of more things than just the finance. Hello, everyone, and welcome. You are listening to the Clarkson Ignite podcast coming to you from the WTSC radio station and the Clarkson Student Center. Hello, everyone. I'm Matt. And I'm Nick. And this podcast, as always, is a bi-weekly podcast meant to connect individuals across Clarkson's diverse community and give you, our listeners, interesting and unique content. Ultimately, we want you to walk away from our episodes always learning something new and valuable, something that will inspire. This week, we talked to Stacy Oakley, class of 04. She took her combination of interpersonal skills and finance savvy to give her a successful career in the hospitality management world. She then translated those skills into becoming a bona fide craft beer scientist. I know I say this every week, but it was a phenomenal conversation. She had a lot to say about uh, what made her unique and how she was able to find her way down to Florida. Um, and she talks a lot about beer. And uh, if you're ever interested in how beer works, um, I think you should give this episode a listen. So with that... Time for listening, man. Listener mail. Okay, everyone. This week, we are getting our question from... Who is it? Who is it? Oh, we got it. It's from Evan Wetzel, freshman on the Clarkson Alpine Ski Team, actually. Um, he asked us... Why does a triangularly cut sandwich triangularly triangularly cut sandwich taste yeah. better than a cut down the middle square cut sandwich? I mean, I agree with the premise. A triangular cut sandwich definitely tastes better. I couldn't tell you why. I don't know whether it's it's more access to the cheesy goodness of the middle. Is it love? And you're you're just right off the bat saying that it is definitely a grilled 100% cheese sandwich. hundred percent better. It's a grilled cheese sandwich too. That's what you cheese. just inferred. Yes. Yeah. It is a grilled cheese sandwich. Okay. Who cuts a right? What other sandwiches are cut triangularly? Uh, peanut butter and jelly. You cut peanut butter and jelly sandwiches triangularly? Yes. That is the mark of me loving myself. <sighs> okay. I don't agree with that premise. I think that there's two different ways you can take this tasting better mm. situation and it is okay, if it's cut something. in a triangle it's made with love okay and then the second way let me cue the alien music it is because uh aliens made triangles the best like a triangle is nature's <laughs> most perfect thing yeah you know how like the pyramids yeah, and it's, stuff it's like a, that it's the strongest yeah it's the strongest, the strongest geometric shape. shape so it is okay. the strongest flavored Shape also, which makes so much sense. I have, a, I have another reason. So going back to grilled cheese being the things cut in triangles. Uh -huh. uh, 
uh, it's easier to dip. You know, like if you like to dip it in Truth. like tomato soup, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's definitely more of a dippable sandwich. Okay. And that's why I think it's sacrilege to do it with peanut butter and jelly. Because what are you dipping peanut butter and jelly in? More peanut butter and that's jelly. That's disgusting. <laughs> 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 right. That's basically it. That's all we got. Well, let us know what you think. Please email me. Please. And don't forget, if you have listener mail questions of your own, send them in to ignitepodcast at clarkson.edu. We check it once a month, so we'll eventually <laughs> get it. All right. Thank you. Uh, so how are you doing today, Stacy? I'm great. How are you guys? Staying uh, warm up there? Uh, not really. It's actually kind of a blizzard <laughs> out. It really is. It, the I know. wind has picked up lately. I've heard. So, yeah. So can uh, just going back to the conversation we had earlier this fall, um, I just want to know uh, how did you get into the hospitality business from the finance degree that you had at Clarkson? It's just a different route that we don't really expect. It definitely is. So I was not your traditional finance person when it came to accounting and finance. I really loved the operational side of finance, like being able to tell a story behind the numbers and what those actually mean. And so I started after Clarkson in actually the insurance industry in um, Connecticut and quickly found myself very bored. So I ended up going to a career advisor and recruiter and they said the exact same thing to me. They said, you are not a typical accounting and finance person. Um, You're a people person who just likes numbers. So they actually geared me towards um, the hospitality side and small business. Um, They saw that I had a lot of passion towards operations and understanding of it. So they wanted me to be in a business where I could be a part of more things than just the finance. So they put me with actually a family in Southern Connecticut that owned a whole lot of businesses. They owned warehouses where movies were being filmed. They owned a grocery store, a restaurant, apartments, um, kind of all of the above. And they put me in charge of all of their financial analysis. So I was doing reporting for them, kind of figuring out like where they were making their money within each of their businesses and which of their businesses were not doing well because they had everything combined instead of kind of separated P&Ls. And then they really wanted to understand like which ones were the most profitable. So that's where I started falling into hospitality. Mm -hmm. And from there, didn't you uh, take that connection to uh, the yacht club that's on uh, Martha's Vineyard, right? Or is it Block Island? I did. So I was, at the time, I was uh, working for this family when I was 22 to 24. And they had an office where I worked, excuse me, They had an office, and above their office was a group of investment bankers. Um, so that and group of investment bankers, and um, they were oil traders, were building a yacht club on Nantucket for fun. Mm-hmm. Um, part of it was <laughs> just for fun. You know, it's not that much. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Two of the guys did not get accepted into the current yacht club on Nantucket because it was um, full and oh, they were wow. on a wait list. So instead of waiting, they, they were like, let's own. build our own. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. And so actually one of them was Meryl Streep's cousin, funny enough. So these group of guys liked what I was doing for their for their friend and said, hey, can you work on this project for us? And it was a hundred million dollar construction project. Wow. So oh, yeah. they needed to understand where all of their money was going and kind of at the same time they were big spenders. So also limiting them on what they were spending. So they started flying me back and forth on actually a private plane um, from Connecticut to Nantucket to handle the financials. And then eventually they moved me there. Mm -hmm. And how long did you live there again for four years? What was it? Uh, No, about seven, almost seven years. Oh yeah. And I mean, I know it's crazy living on Nantucket year round. Uh, I mean, living with the locals, they're always uh, making fun of you for not being a person that's born there. What was that like? Um, It was funny. I mean, I definitely integrated myself with the community. Um, During the summertime, it was, you know, you met all these new friends and it was fantastic. And then all of a sudden September hits and all of your friends are gone. So I decided to, I played volleyball and softball a lot when I was in high school. And so the local community is actually made up of a lot of Dominicans, El Salvadorians, Mexicans, um, because they're the labor laborers um, for a lot of the homes there. So keeping up the homes during the winter time. So I actually started playing on a volleyball league on Wednesday nights in the gym with the uh, El Salvadorians, and I played softball with the Dominicans on Sundays. Um, and wow. then the local Nantucketers got to know me very well at the restaurants because <laughs> I always loved. I actually started bartending one night a week on the weekends for fun. Oh, that's awesome! Um, kind of got to integrate a lot more with the local people. That's cool. And what was it like kind of watching the the yacht club go from an idea and a big pile of money into something that was legitimate? It was insane. Um, number one, just understanding the amount of permitting and funds that have to go into a construction project that large was all new to me um, and the politics behind it. Uh, Nantucket, as you know, is a very small town. So when it came to something being built on the water um, where there's eelgrass easements and all sorts of stuff with the docks being built, I mean, you can't imagine the amount of legal fees spent on a project like that. Um, But it was amazing Uh, when it came together and when it was complete and eventually turned over to the members. Um, I went from being on the construction project to actually the CFO of the Yacht Club. Um, the members asked me to stay on, which is why I was there for so long. So it was a pretty cool project. Yeah, it sounds like it. Wow. And why did you decide to uh, stop working there and move on? So um, after working as the CFO on operations side um, with the members, it became a very easy job to me um, just because it was the same thing every year after yeah. that. Mm-hmm. And I'm a project person. Yeah. Like I love new things and learning. Yeah. So um, plus the weather. <laughs> <laughs> My husband and I met on Nantucket. He was a chef there and we both kind of 
were getting sick of the cold and the the winters there because as much as Nantucket's beautiful in the winter, you can imagine just like where you guys are, it's very yeah. cold and windy and very difficult to get off the island. Yes. So my brothers lived down in Florida. My husband had gone to college down here and we wanted warm weather. So I was like, all right, time for a change. Let's go. So that's how I ended up down in Florida. Oh, wow. And how did you get the connection to the Florida brewery? I know you moved around a little bit. Uh, you actually worked at uh, one of the Disney uh, places for a little bit, and then you decided to move on to the brewery. How did you get there? So my resume, when I first moved down here, my resume was out on Career Builder. Mm-hmm. And so I was with a resort when I first moved down. Um, I absolutely loved it. I was on the operational finance side of the resort. So I handled all of the financials for food and beverage, um, the golf, the um, all of the amenity side, basically, mm-hmm. of the resort. And then I worked with all of the directors, helping them understand their budgets and their forecasts every month. But my resume was still on Career Builder. I never had taken it down after I was hired. Oh, wow. And so I one day got this email from our current COO, Julie, and just saying, hey, we have this position. I'm just interested in your resume. Would you like to meet with me? And I wasn't actually looking for a job at the time. So I, of course, said, sure, I'm never going to turn down an opportunity to talk to somebody. And we just hit it off. I mean, I had no idea about manufacturing or brewing beer or anything, but it was just one of those things where it was, I just felt, you know, kind of a connection between her and I and said, this could be a really great opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. And how much do you like uh, the difference between uh, hospitality to manufacturing? I know it's a big difference. Huge difference, but surprisingly, the beer industry is probably the most hospitable industry (laughs) you could ever be in. Um, If every business operated like a brewery operates, it would be an amazing world. And I say (laughs) that just because of the collaboration between breweries is one in a kind, you know, one of a kind. Um, Everybody in this business talks to each other shares ideas. Nobody is worried about, you know, are they going to steal this or are they going to open up and take business away? It's really not. It's just such a friendly industry. So manufacturing, definitely different, you know, dealing with efficiencies on our bottling line and liquid loss in the brew house, but it's all numbers and they all tell a story. So you can kind of take finance to any division and understand it or any kind of manufacturing hospitality and you know every number has a story of its own but business wise it is still very much in the hospitality industry Mm. what was the biggest learning curve for you switching over to manufacturing and in brewing um it was probably the difference between the level of education of the staff actually that was the hardest thing for me to adjust to Um, Because in manufacturing, you have a lot of um, line level employees that are uneducated and um, hourly versus I was dealing before with directors and prior to that, you know, millionaires and hedge fund people. So um, the language is definitely much different and helping under, you know, just employees who don't understand because I also handle the HR side of things. Mm. So employees who don't necessarily understand the value of a 401k or health insurance, um, before I never had to deal with any of that kind of stuff. 
here it's definitely different even um from a language perspective we have a lot of employees who are primarily speak spanish first english so um, learning how to communicate properly with them which mm. i don't speak spanish i've learned a good amount but um, it's definitely sometimes a barrier for me that was the biggest learning curve is just the difference in the people mm -hmm. how was the curve to becoming a professional beer maker i mean before you're just probably i mean you were used to be a college student you probably knew a little bit about beer but now you know <laughs> the ins and the outs the loggers and the ales and all that what was it like learning all oh, that oh yeah i mean i definitely started i mean i'm one that if i get into something i go 1000% so I started reading books. I started taking online courses. I didn't just want to understand the business, but I wanted to actually feel like I could carry a conversation easily with anybody who came to me and talked to me about beer. Mm -hmm. So um, even the chemistry, beer has a huge amount of chemistry behind it. So, mm -hmm. and the way things react with each other within the brewing cycle. So I started learning all of that and just um, reading books. There was some books out there by you know, the original owner of Dogfish Head, who Sam Calgione, who started writing books for those who just are starting brewery businesses. And that's kind of where I started. And now, um, I mean, every year I'm learning more. Um, this year, I'm actually going to be a certified um, Cicerone, which is actually a certified beer taster. Oh, wow. So um, something where you because we have to taste beer every morning or product every morning. <laughs> you poor thing. Oh, no. That's the worst. Sounds <laughs> fun. But you do have to taste it in all of the different stages of beer. So at oh, the okay. beginning when it's kind of just wort, basically malt and some uh, yeast put together, it doesn't taste so great at first. But uh, this, it trains you to basically taste any defects within the beer and to be able to tell you, what those defects are caused by, you know, which part of the brewing process or was it oxidized, oxidized? I mean, I now after being in the beer industry, I completely realized that I was drinking like skunky beer the entire time I was in college. Mm, yeah. um, so but back then I just thought it was, you know, cheap beer and whatever. It was good. I've learned a lot, though. Yeah. <laughs> what was the certification process like for that you're going through right now to to be a certified beer taste tester so it's actually i it, it's a class that i'm going a week up uh to illinois for so um it's going to be 10 hour days of oh, tasting wow. and um smelling and then there's blind tasting every day where basically um you have to understand you basically get a bunch of glasses it's blind they have numbers on them and then you basically have to give the descriptor and be able to tell what beer out of those beers is the good beer or oh. the fresh beer. Um, oh. And then you get a certification at the end. So there's a few descriptors that are very difficult for me and I've been practicing them. But um, for example, there's one where if you smell the beer, it almost smells a little bit like popcorn, um, but it's very hard to taste the difference in it and it's a very very slight smell it's basically like the first step of oxidation that happens and that one is very difficult for most people to ever smell but you have to be able to smell that in order to get certified so 
I will be practicing. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> Is everyone just wasted by the end of this? <laughs> <laughs> no, because you taste very small amounts during this, or else <laughs> you probably would never have anybody who passed. Oh wow! I, I mean, yeah, that's just that that's kind of crazy. <laughs> Uh, a That's little bit. Crazy. Everybody asks, they're like, you taste every morning? Yes, but very small amount. <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, sometimes we shut down at noon and have a beer Friday. Now, that is usually not tasting in small amounts. That's yeah. usually us just having fun with different beers that we've been producing and kind of testing them out. And That's cool, though. It's a, it's a good way for uh, employee engagement and stuff like that as well, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. The employees love it. Yeah. So a little bit about the actual brewery. I know you guys are, I mean, you're not a small brewery by any sakes, but you're definitely a craft brewery. And uh, aren't you guys very different from most craft breweries because of the types of beer you make? Aren't you, uh, as opposed to most craft breweries, you're lagers instead of ales? Exactly. Um, So our brewmaster, she actually studied in Germany um, for an entire year, and she is very strong on the lager side of beers, which means we it's bottom fermenting beer versus top fermenting, which are what ales are. It also takes usually a longer process of fermentation. So our lagers usually are in the tanks from start to finish from 18 to 21 days um, versus ales can be done sometimes in as quick of as a week or wow. two weeks. So They take a lot less time in the tanks, which is why most craft brewers do them, because they can rotate their tanks faster. Plus, um, most craft brewers are not filtering their beer um, because they don't have a filter to filter their beer. So if you kind of pay attention now when you guys buy beers, um, you'll see that there's there's they're more cloudy or they have particles in them from the hops, whereas our beers all go through a candle filter. and so it makes the beer very clear, very smooth. So how did, um, I'm assuming the, the decision to bring in that brewmaster and, and focus on lagers was done pretty early on in the company's process. How did that kind of affect the, the fixed costs and the overhead costs that you guys had to incur um, to, to commit to lagers? Was it a significant increase? It's not, not not necessarily for us because we have the capacity. Mm. Um, if we were a smaller brewery that doesn't have a lot of capacity, it would definitely increase the cost, and it would it would probably make it very difficult to create multiple kinds of beer um, because of that time in the tanks. I mean, time in the tanks is money. Yeah. And so when we do look at we do contract brewing um, for other breweries. And we have one brewery that is all ales. So we do produce ales here, not under our brands, but Mm -hmm. under their brands. And they are. I mean, they're much quicker to produce. And a lot of ales are kind of covered up with a lot of flavors. Mm. So um, unless you're a very clean, you know, ale, a lot of people are putting a lot of hops in them, a lot of um, flavorings and, you know, extracts and things like that so it almost covers a little bit of any of the impurities that the beer has um it's not a bad thing it's just the way craft works and it works because it takes less time and it makes my i mean it still is great beer and it makes a lot of money um but it's not as traditional as german style of brewing now the contract brewing thing kind of it 
interests me a little bit. I've just read up a, a bunch about because the startup cost for doing, you know, making beer is pretty substantial. So how much yes. what percentage of your business is contract brewing? Is it a lot? So it's right now a small amount. We well, we make other beverages besides beer. Okay. We make a product called Malta, um, which is very similar process to beer. It's a non-alcoholic barley based beverage that's very popular in the Hispanic Hispanic community. We do a lot of private label for Malta and contract brewing for Malta. Okay. Um, but for beer, we actually just started this past year doing contract brewing. Hmm. Um, before we weren't that interested in it because we didn't know you know, what's going to come in here? What kind of products are they going to want in our mm -hmm. tanks? What kind of cleaning are we going to have to do? You know, but we figured out some processes and we increased our efficiencies in order to be able to do it. And, um, it definitely helps small brewers out for yeah. sure. I mean, we can offer major economies of scale just with purchasing power alone. Mm. Um, our barley comes by rail car uh, oh, wow. from Canada yep. oh, instead wow. of by 50 pound bags mm. all the way from um, Canada. So, Jeez. Probably rides right by yeah. us. <laughs> exactly. We probably have a rail car stuck up there somewhere right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so oh, what was I going to say? I got something. All right, go for it. All right. Yeah. So, um, I know you guys do the loggers and uh, it's a lot different from the others, but how do you guys get the craft brewery like flavors um, from the lager process? Because I know you guys have a bunch of different exotic flavors. Yes. So, I mean, basically what we're doing constantly is we, actually a lot of our employees have a lot to do with what we brew. Um, they'll come to us with an idea. We actually also have some employees who own farms hmm. or work on farms and they'll bring product to us um, to test and say, OK, let's try to put like one of our guys had cane sugar, real cane sugar. He's like, let's try to ferment beer with cane sugar. See what that does to it. Um so we'll do things like that. But from a standpoint of the flavors, our biggest thing, our tagline for the Florida brewery is a taste of the Florida lifestyle. So that's our main focus. We stick to that vision with all of our beers. We keep it more simple um, so that the beer flavor is definitely coming out first. Mm. And if there are flavors in the background, they're there, but it's not like you're drinking a completely different product. So um for example, we just um, we have a, a beer called Beach Me Up, and it's a grapefruit shandy, and we use a Pilsner base for it. So normally shandies are made with wheat beer, and we instead wanted to bring a little bit of a lighter flavor to it mm -hmm. um, for Florida because wheat beers tend to be a little bit more heavier in body. Um, so we took a Pilsner beer, and we actually got – grapefruit emulsion from Colombia, where the grapefruits are the ripest um, during the summer season and brought that in to kind of mix together with our Pilsner. It's become probably one of our top beers in our tap room. And all of our beers, we relate to something you would be doing in Florida. So for example, Beach Me Up is our beer that you'd be drinking on the beach, you know, or mm. daydreaming that you are at a beach. Yeah. <laughs> So that's kind of where we go with all of them. Um, Gator Lager, which is our flagship lager, is a American style, you know, tailgating, 
um, boating, everyday grilling, lager. Um, so that one we really focus on those who just want the beer to go out on the fishing boat and, you know, not just be able to drink one. That's our biggest thing. You know, we don't want a beer where somebody drinks it and says it's good, yeah. but I can only drink one of these. Yeah. Does that one sell uh, well at Florida State? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's funny that name Gator Lager we've owned since 1986 mm -hmm. because the brewmaster at the time um, that was here at the brewery, his son went to Florida State and or not Florida State. He was a Gator. Yeah. And um, he is the one that came up with the name, came up with the beer. And actually, we've just kept it in registration the entire time. So it was born back then, but it has been re brought out of hibernation this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's some nice clout that comes along with being, what are you guys, the second oldest brewery in Florida? Brewery in operation in Florida. So um, obviously there was many other breweries back before abolition, but after that, um, Anheuser-Busch was here, and then we are the second oldest still mm -hmm. in operation that has not shut down operations. Wow. So you kept running during the abolition, or we're, were you, or do you shut down for we that? We were after abolition, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Awesome. So there was more prior to that, but they were all shut down, basically. Mm. So there weren't any still in operation. Do mm -hmm. you have anything else, Nick? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, oh, cool. I actually, you last time you described um, a lot about the beers to me, like um, how an amber lager and stuff like that and how you guys made those. Can you just give me a little bit yeah. more depth on that? Because sure. I knew the science so, behind uh, it. You were you're geeking out on me last time, and I loved it. <laughs> Lots of technical things last time, yes. So our amber lager, we use um, we use a couple different color flavor or a couple different malt flavors. So we use a two row spring barley malt, which um, is standard in lagers. And there's two different types of barley, two row or six row. Um, two row is actually a more quality standard malt. So that's the one that we get from Canada. We also, in order to get that amber flavor, our amber lager is kind of the color of like a sunset in the evening in Florida. Mm -hmm. And to get that flavor and to get that color, we used a caramel malt, um, to mix with our two row spring malt barley. And then, um, after that we add hops and kind of our alcohol on that is 5.2%. And our bitter units, um, which for those that don't understand bitter units, bitter units mm -hmm. come from the hops within the beer. So the more hops added, the higher the bitter units are. Um, for example, if you look at like an IPA or an IPL, uh, India Pale Lager, India Pale Ale, they're going to have a lot higher IBUs. Um, so if you're looking for a drinkable beer, that you want more than one of, um, definitely look at the IBUs on the can. Most mm. of them will have it labeled there. And a lot of people kind of get crazy with the hops. And so their IBUs are at like 80 or 90. And if you can drink a six pack of that, I'd be pretty proud. Um, <laughs> but most people can't. Most people want to drink an IPA or an IPL, like have one or now there's some people making, they call them like your all day IPAs. And when you look at those, they're going to be lower and bitter units. Um, our amber lager is very low. It's at 24, which means it's definitely a more malt forward lager versus a hoppy beer. Mm -hmm. 
if you tend to to go from 35 or below, you're going to have probably higher drinkability and a higher flavor of malt versus hops in your beer. So that's kind of what we geared with our amber lager. Definitely drinkability was one of our main focuses for all of our all of our beers. Mm-hmm. We wow. are working on an IPL right now. We have one dry hopping. Um, dry hopping is basically when after you do hops within the brewing cycle of beer, you'll add additions of hops into the tanks to actually, um, they're basically like it's dry. You're, you're putting in a big basket full of hops that kind of sit in there. It's almost like mm. when you steep tea, okay. you know, in one of those little tea, what are they yeah, called? Straight, yes. the little, you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, right? yeah no, I have one. It's a sloth yeah. actually. The it's hops are done the yeah. same way. We actually had some custom-made baskets for us because our tanks are so large. Um, so we had these baskets made that carried 200 pounds of hops for us to be able to do dry hopping mm-hmm. in the tanks. Oh, wow. Yeah. It smells fantastic when we're doing it. <laughs> it's like you can smell hops for the entire block. It's That's great. Crazy. All right. Yeah. That's all the questions I had for right now. Yeah. Other than maybe, uh, Stacy, what's your uh, future in the beer industry as a mm. beerontologist? <laughs> so it's interesting. We are actually working on our distribution within Florida um, for three of our flagship beers right now. So actually, I've been doing a lot on the sales side of our um, of beer. So I'm meeting with distributors, understanding the language for retailers and for distribution which is definitely new to me. So um, in order to learn that, I've actually been partnering up with some of the best people in the state by asking people, you know, who are the best and then setting up lunches with them and just talking with them to pick their brain. And it's been fantastic because people are super happy to share their knowledge. Mm. Um, so that's kind of been my my new focus this year. Well, awesome. and the the distribution for the beer industry is interesting, right? So it's bottled. Do you guys bottle in-house and then send to a distributor? Is that how it works? Yes. So most states still have a three-tier distribution system, which means you have to have a distributor and you can't sell direct to a retailer. Mm. So it's very complicated because you could go to a grocery store chain and get them to love the beer, mm. but you can never sell direct to them. So once you go to that chain, then you need to go to the distributor and say, okay, I have chain authorization to get into this grocery store. Will you carry my beer? Whoa. And they can easily say, no, yeah. I have no interest. That's um, crazy. Luckily, the distributors I've met with so far all have strong interest in carrying our beer and are picking it up. So that's good. that's been good news for us. Awesome. Well, I'm sure you yeah. probably never expected to learn as much about beer as you do now. Um, it was definitely a pleasure for us to, to hear a little bit about it. All right, Stacy, thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, guys. It was great talking to you. Have great a great to talk day. To you as well. Wow. What an intoxicating conversation. Get it. all right everyone that is all we have for this week we hope you enjoyed the conversation and uh until next time i'm matt and i am nick smell you later